You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer Alex Diaz and our production assistant Daniel Tersini, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? Doing well, thank you. That's Doing good. well. That's good. Summer's around the corner here. Everything is good. Um, I want to let everyone know that today's show is taped, so no opportunity for your questions. Um, I'm looking forward to today's show. This is part two of our discussion with Dr. Antonio Stecco on fascia. We've made sure that our line is cleaned up a little bit this time. So what we'll be doing today is um, sort of revisiting our first our first conversation with Dr. Stecco and introducing some new research that he has. So uh, very much looking forward to this. But as I said, our show is taped. Um, if you have further questions after listening to this show, uh, please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And... Um, Please follow us on all our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on all of our social channels. It's a great opportunity for you to take a look at upcoming guests, some of their information. We also put lots of uh, healthy tidbits on there for you, so do do follow us. And uh, please subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes and SoundCloud and all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. Um, I want to start the show off today talking about our liver. I haven't talked about this too much, and it's a vitally important organ. It weighs about three and a half pounds, and it's the largest solid organ in our body. It performs approximately 500 different functions, a key one being detoxifying. So our liver does work hard for us every day. And um, when it's overworked, it will give us some signs that it may need support. Some support. Here are some indications that uh, you may get, need to give your liver a little bit of extra loving to help it to do all the important things that it does for us. So if you wake up uh, during the night, if you're consistently waking up around 1, 2, or 3 o'clock in the morning, your liver may be wanting some help. When we sleep, the liver becomes more active and works on cleaning and detoxifying. During the day, um, in general terms, your liver is working more on the digestive pathway, but at night, it is a key detoxifier and repairer. And when we wake up around liver time, it can be a signal that the liver is showing, is showing some signs of overtoxicity. Uh, many times this will happen if people eat too much sugar or animal protein, especially just before bedtime. So you'll find out in some of the tips at the end that eating before going to bed is a no-no, especially for your liver health. 
some eye problems are also associated with liver issues, conjunctivitis, lots of mucus, itching, macular degeneration, dry eyes and cataracts could be an indication of liver weakness. Another physical clue is a vertical line between your eyebrows. So that, uh, that is a, a quick look in the mirror. I mean, if we frown a lot, there, there'll be a natural line there, but just one little um, physical clue that you can look at. Another problem is if you get angry very quickly. The liver is, when it's congested and forced to work hard, it becomes hot. And this can cause anger. And this is associated with uh, many types of liver disease as well. So, you know, just take into account if you've had a rough week and you're flying off the handle a bit more, you know, these all could be pointing that your liver needs to have a friendly little um, bit of help. Hormonal imbalances, PMS, hot flashes, and premenopausal symptoms are um, increased due to a congested liver. And some skin problems are associated with liver disease and uh, not so much disease, but overwork. Eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, skin rashes, acne and dry skin could be a clue for you. And another one, uh, which makes a lot of sense, knowing that this is a key detoxifier for us, is constipation. And uh, this is often a sign of a congested liver. And it's a sign of stressed adrenals as well. So, um, but do do bear in mind and, and bear in mind and take into consideration all the other symptoms that I have uh, talked to you about. The colon needs to be addressed during constipation as well, obviously. But attending to liver is important. Excuse me for one sec. So I do have a few tips to help support your liver when you think it needs some loving. Drink some pure water, pure filtered water throughout the day. This really helps to to detoxify. Um, And drinking a bit of lemon in your water, especially first thing in the morning, is um, very much recommended. I recommend this to to most of the people that I work with. Your liver works very hard during the night to detoxify, and a little bit of lemon water helps to um, excrete the toxins. Eating and, and for me, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. The lemon water would be a big plus for me personally. I struggle drinking water just because I find it somewhat flavorless, but the lemon would but, definitely help yeah. me personally. A lot enjoy of people it a bit have better. that have that problem, um, you know. And you can put uh, one one great thing that I like to also help detoxify the liver is putting a bit of chlorophyll. It's got a bit of a minty taste, mm-hmm. and you can put that in your water. It makes it taste nice, nice and fresh. But you can put all sorts of different fruit in just to give you a variety of water. You can even make ice cubes out of things and stick them in your water. So there's another idea for you. Thank you. But if you if you have lemon water in the morning and you drink two cups of water, you're well on your way to having a good amount of water during the day. I'll so, keep that in mind. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Alex. Uh, eating a good uh, diet, of course. So eating dark greens, sometimes having them raw, depending on where you are in your digestion. Um, a good source of, of fiber for your liver helps to um, support detoxification as well. Having a sauna is also a great idea. Sweating um, is, is a great way to help your body detoxify and support your liver. So sweating, exercising. Don't eat three hours before bedtime. So that is an important one that I, I highlighted a little bit earlier. Um, we talked about timed eating many times. It's popped up. But uh, going back to circadian rhythms and timing of what goes on in our body, you don't want your liver when it's um, supposed to be working on detoxifying and repairing for you. You don't want it to be working on digestion. Digestion. 
Digestion yeah. takes a lot of work. Um, I don't know if we appreciate that. But if you're going to sleep and your body has to start digesting food, you're really um, throwing yourself out of a proper rhythm. Not doing yourself any favors. No, you're not. And that when we start with uh, time eating, when I'm working with people and we start with time eating, uh, this is the first place I start. You know, this is the, the easiest place, not eating three hours before bedtime. And it's, to me, the most crucial place. So those are some tips to help support your liver and some ways to, to give you indication that your liver may need some help. So I hope that is uh, helpful for you. So on to today's show with Dr. Antonio Stecco. Uh, Dr. Stecco is assistant professor at Rusk Rehabilitation, New York University. He's a psychiatrist, president of Fascial Manipulation Association, and assistant to the president of the International Society of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. His scientific activity is devoted to the study of the human fascia from macroscopically, histologically, and physiopathologically point of view. He personally made over 100 cadaver dissections for research. Since 2007, he has organized and personally holds theoretical practical courses about fascial manipulation methods uh, in all five continents. He is author of more than 40 extensor papers about fascia. He has co-authored five books and is co-author of different chapters of international books published by El Savior. Now, those were big words that I managed to get my tongue around this time. I seem to the last few shows have had a bit of a time, but that one worked. So our learning points today are promoting healthy fascia. Uh, some of the recent findings that Dr. Stecco and his team have found we're going to talk about, especially in the area of neuropathy. And we are going to review again fascia manipulation and how it can be beneficial to our health. So we will be talking to Dr. Stecco when we return. I'm 
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, today's show is taped, so no opportunity for call-in. But if you have any questions for Dr. Stecco or any of us on the show, do email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And do follow us, please, on our social sites, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC. Dr. Stecco, thank you for joining us again. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and explain a little bit more about fascia. Yes, it's it's a fascinating topic. This will be we're going to treat this sort of as part two to our original interview, um, because uh, I'm not sure if uh, who has listened to it out there, but uh, the podcast was a little bit uh, we didn't have a very clear line. So we're going to review some of the details that we talked about um, in our first show with Dr. Stecco and then go into some of his current research. So, Dr. Stecco, maybe we can review again what fascia is. Well, fascia is connected tissue. It's uh, basically the layer, like the membrane that you see around the meat, that uh, white membrane that a lot of time you take it off because it's not tasty at all. Mm. But in reality, it's very important because work for mechanics, work for transmit force. So it's, uh, it's part of our mechanical, you know, musculoskeletal system, we can say. I was uh, watching a YouTube video, uh, just a brief one, about uh, the 2018 conference you had. I think it was in Berlin. Is that correct? Yes. And in it, it said that um, you're now referring to the fascia as the largest and most important organ in the body. Can you uh, go into detail about why that is? Well, because... Connected tissue is extremely well represented in our body. Uh, when uh, you you see any picture, they basically they don't show up the connected tissue because they want to show you like uh, the nerve, the 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 vessels, 
And, uh, and this basically will uh, make uh, more difficult uh, for a normal person to understand uh, why quantity tissue is so important. But in reality, it is uh, a major component. Uh, and let's say that 30% of the muscle fiber, they merge into the fascia. So it means that one-third of your mechanics is uh, managed by the fascia system. So what in your, you know, how would you explain to us what you would define as somebody who has very healthy fascia? So a healthy fascia, it means someone that is able to have, let's say, full range of motion. So all the range of motion of one part of the body is symmetrical to the other one. Uh, It doesn't feel any particular pulling, tension, heaviness and is basically able to be free to perform all the movement without any pain or, let's say, tension perceived. So, unfortunately, it's not so easy. So, a lot of, I think, uh, uh, audience right here will say, look, I have a fascia problem. I think it is because literature explained that like 85% of the people, they have at the least once in a life myofascial problem, at the least. But I think it would be even more than 85%. Well, fascia, is it, are there different types of fascia within the body or is it all the same fascia that is interweaving in and out of, of all parts? Well, we can divide like in three major types of fascia. We have what we call superficial fascia. That is a very tiny membrane in the middle of the adipose tissue of the fat. So let's say it's right below the skin. And it's very important because uh, it, it inside this fascia travel the vein, like the saphenous vein or the sensory nerves. So are very important when we talk about the varicose vein, uh, you know, uh, numbing, tingling for irritation of the nerve, but also cellulitis. So when you have cellulitis, a lot of time is the, the superficial fascia that become rigid. And so it doesn't allow like the level of fat to expand. If we have this uh, typical, you know, orange surface uh, skin uh, due to this tension that comes from below, from the, 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 the region in the middle of the fat. This is the first one. Then we have uh, the deep fascia that uh, the name explains where it is. So basically, it's uh, adherent or very close to the muscle. This is definitely thicker, is uh, while representing our body, it is extremely connected with the muscle. So it's very difficult to separate the fascia from the muscle. Uh, they work together in, let's say, that 30% of the muscle fiber are connected with the fascia. So the deep fascia works like a flat tendon. So it's like a uh, a flat tendon that transmits the force uh, far away. And sometimes we say that uh, it's like a long socks in the leg, uh, a long gloves in the arm. So it helps to transmit the force of the big muscle that we have in the gluteus area, in the shoulder, down around the limbs to have a better mechanics, a much more strength in the extremity. The last one is the visual fascia. So we know that between the visual organ, we have a lot of fascia that are helped to 
separate the organ because each organ have a different mobility, motility, but at the same time to support us and give like a connection between the organ and the, and the cavity or like a, the abdominal cavity, let's say. So the visual fascia is important because they permit this organ to be independent. At the same time, through this fascia, nerve and vessel reach the organ. All of them have a, they, they can have a disorder or sometimes really pathology. And so our research is to describe and define what are these pathology and how we can take care of the fascia. I'll get back to the pathology in a second. Uh, what's popped up into my mind, I've got two questions for you. Now, if you are, if you were able to do it, is the fascia one solid interweaving piece? If you could take it off from all parts of the body, would you ha- be able to strip off a solid piece? Or uh, is fascia, you know, a strip and then as you go to an organ, it's, it just encases the organ and that's it. And then it's another organ that's encased. Or is this all flowing and one sort of solid in and out organ? Excellent question. Um, we, we have like a, a macroscopic and microscopic fascia, let's say. Uh, the, the larger, the well-represented is uh, something that you can really dissect, isolate it, in study and pull and, uh, you know, hang your mind, um, in your hand. But there is also what we call uh, endomysium, perimysium, epimysium, that are uh, definitely thinner fascia that uh, are integrated in the muscle, or we call like an endonevrium, you know, so other fascia that is inside the nerve or in septa inside the organ. So connected tissue is present in all the organ that we have. So like a, in a large definition, like a fascia system, we include all this kind of connected tissue that connects different structure. But if we talk about the specific deep fascia, we can simply think about uh, like a, this uh, long gloves and long socks that cover all the muscle and generate like a big compartment. So we, we have tried in the last fascia congress to distinguish the fascia system that includes much more connective tissue from the fascia by itself. That is what is uh, present in a lot of atlas and, uh, and it's clearly defined. So you can really describe and identify clearly during this section. So... If you have, say, an area of congestion in your leg, let's say a fascia, we'll get to the fascia pathology and go into that a bit more in a second. What I'm getting at is if you've got some sort of um, pathology in the fascia in one area, can that actually impact other areas and say organs that are also lined with the fascia? Yeah, this is the most important uh, principle and maybe explanation why people have a symptom and then after a while have another symptom and then after a while another symptom and then go back with the first one. Because fascia can explain a lot of these uh, sequelae. So fascia connect, so it's connected tissue. So 
if there is an, a disorder, a pathology of the fascia in one area, this uh, stiffness, because uh, we will talk about uh, major, like an uh, increase of the rigidity of this tissue, will affect the surrounding area in specific line of force. So from a, a disorder in one area of the leg, time after time, it will generate a disorder distantly approximate to that area, even opposite to that area. So it's for this reason that uh, people time after time uh, will start to have uh, uh, multiple symptoms that come and go, that nothing show up in the MRI, but it's still very painful up to, you know, affect uh, severely the quality of life of one person. And this is so new that would many doctors even be able to, you know, come up with some sort of a, a diagnosis to do with fascia? Are we at that point yet? Unfortunately, not yet. So we are in the process. So until now, um, it was a, a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's not arthritis, it's not a tear of the tendon, so it can be my fascial problem. Uh, now we have a little bit more uh, uh, instruments, investigation that allow us to define if there is a myofascial problem. So we have a particular type of ultrasound, ultrasonography, and now in NYU we have developed a new type of MRI that is able to classify what kind of fascia is present in that specific area of the body. But this is still a, a research project. So we have a preliminary data that we are going to publish soon, but it will far away to be in the clinical practice of everybody. So we're, we're at this point here where people need to be educated that they can probably bring this up. Let's go uh, before we go to break, because I want to get into some some really interesting research that you have done. Um, actually, there are two ways I want to go here. Let's let's start with what is pathology when we're speaking about fascia? Yeah, this is very important. So I, I try to avoid to, to talk about pathology because pathology means a change of the tissue. Uh, it can happen. It can happen a lot of time, uh, this, uh, this problem. Uh, but uh, it, basically with fascia, lucky for us, uh, is uh, most of the time uh, the tissue by itself, uh, it doesn't look altered, but uh, it changes the stiffness. And the stiffness, unfortunately, is something that is not well assessed or there is not tool, uh, instrument that are able to assess stiffness properly. So the really pathology is rare. So we call fibrosis. So when we have a, an exceed amount of connective tissue, like in a scar tissue, uh, when uh, you have a, a big infection, a trauma, a surgery, you can have a, a fibrosis, like scar tissue. That is the really pathology of fascia. But it's relatively uh, rare, but extremely easy to make diagnosis because a, a simple uh, ultrasound, a simple uh, um, imaging CT scan will, will immediately show up that there is this problem. And so you can immediately define what treatment has to be done. Unfortunately, the majority of the time, uh, there is nothing wrong. So the MRI is negative, ultrasound is negative because, because the morphology of the fascia is not change, but is the quality of the fascia, so the stiffness of the fascia that is change. 
and we will talk a little bit more in detail if we, we need about this particular process. So stiffness, unfortunately, is something that everybody feels because they feel, you know, my neck is stiff, my shoulder is stiff, my low back is stiff. But honestly, nobody is able to explain what is the stiffness. Is muscle or is something else? In reality, we have found with different research and not our group, but other group as well, that this stiffness most of the time is due to an alteration of the fascia. And this is why fascia can be a key element for pain generation. So there are nerves in the fascia? Correct. This is uh, now is well known, but we are talking about 10 years. Since 10 years ago, nobody knew that the fascia was innervated. Mm. So it's something really new. It did have changed completely the rule of fascia as a pain generator. So since 2010, uh, 2008, honestly, uh, we didn't know that fascia can generate pain. Now we know the fascia is much more innervated than tendon ligament. So between the two, fascia can generate a much higher input afferents than a ligament a tendon. So between the three structure is really fascia that the t-shirt has to be assessed because fascia can really generate a high intensity, painful afferents. And so it can be the one, the element that is bottom us that give it like the syndrome or the syndrome that uh, push us to go to the doctor, to the specialist, to figure it out why we have the symptom. We are not able to figure it out what is wrong. So it really makes it difficult for us to know if it's uh, the muscle or the fascia. I think we're going to have to stop right there. Um, We're going to come back and talk about the fascia manipulation and uh, some interesting research that someone you know well, your sister, has done in the area. So we'll be right back.
Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Antonio Stecco. It's part two of our discussion on fascia, and uh, it's just a fascinating topic for me. Uh, Dr. Stecco, there are two areas which I am profoundly interested in. Uh, I just find it fascinating. One is um, Dr. Carla Stecco, who is your sister, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. She's a associate professor here at University of Padova. She did some research on uh, a new type of cell in the fascia. Could you explain to us what that is and, and the importance of this finding? So she discovered um, a particular cell that produces hyaluronic acid, or it would be better called like a hyaluronan. So it's the lubricant that we have in the body that, that is necessary in the fascia to allow the gliding between fascia and muscle but as well between different layers of fascia. So be able to define it. We have this cell all over the body that uh, allows us to move, basically, to, to, to let the different structure to glide, will permit us to understand also eventually pathology. So why sometimes uh, we feel stiffness? Why sometimes the range of motion is decreased? So this is like a, the the work and the research that we are trying to develop to better understood, uh, to better understand like uh, this process in this pathology. Getting to the mechanics of fascia again, is there, um, so the fascia is, is when it's at its healthiest is a glide. It's gliding back and forth, allowing things to move within a particular area. Um, is there any sort of a lubricant that is involved in this? Is, is, is fascia that is maybe not healthy, dehydrated, for, for lack of a better word? Yeah, um, let's say fascia by itself is made, let's say that, but layer of collagen fiber that transmits the force. In between different layers, normally we have like three layers, we have a loose connective tissue that basically is a glycosaminoglycans, 
hyaluronic acid and adipose cell. So the hyaluronic acid is really the key element for lubrication, the key element for gliding. So the hyaluronic acid is a very particular, bizarre substance because when we have a decrease of the, of the temperature become more sticky, more glue. When we don't move, it starts to aggregate. When we have too much in a spread surface, it can aggregate. When we have a decrease of the pH, like uh, after you know, an important exercise, we have a lot of lactic acid. If the pH in the muscle decreases, it can reach like 6.6. .6. At that level, the viscosity increase of 20, 25%. So these are all elements, cofactor that can increase the stiffness. So it can affect the biomechanics, so decrease the range of motion, as well irritate the free and nerves, and so generate pain. So the fascia gets stiff. The stiffness sort of is like a a brush on the nerves, and that can lead to pain. So this is a whole new sort of concept of why we need to have movement. This is not something you know. We've been um, talking a lot about sitting, and and it's bad for your health. But this kind of takes it to a whole different level. Talking about the fascia, I think it's a very interesting thing that people need to understand. Now, yeah, well, I'm fully agree. There, there are, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's something that I've started talking to people about, just very simple stretching even. Uh, when you wake up in the morning and you're stiff and you haven't moved, the, the act of simple stretching must, I would assume, be very beneficial to the fascia. Correct. It's what really I prescribe, like therapeutic stretching. In fact, in the morning, the people say, look, you know, the first step, I feel pain, the heel or in my low back, and then I warm up, it getting better. That is not arthritis. That is my fascia problem. Because uh, the fascia, have a, the hyaluronic in particular, so the lubricant, has like a, a thixotropic effect, like a ketchup. So if you leave it, it becomes stiffy, sticky. If you shake, it becomes more lubricant. So during the night, it becomes more sticky. And so in the morning, when you wake up, you feel a little bit stiffness. And as soon as you start to move, it goes away. So... We, we recommend to do that, but not just in the morning. After all exercise, it can be useful to, to squeeze, let's say, the muscle compartment to avoid retention of aluronan. It can aggregate. It can increase the viscosity. And does that also push the lactic acid out after uh, movement, after exercise? Um, yes. So that could be... Also, a reason why that can be helpful after activity. We don't have a strong data this time. We are still uh, working to collect data, but uh, clinically, we see this result. Is it necessary to stretch before you start exercising? Does that have any impact on the fascia, or is it after? Um, honestly, before, like warm-up process is more than enough, uh, because we saw that... Uh, after a specific amount of time, the, the warm-up will decrease the viscosity, correct, and will allow you to have a perfect perception of your body. So the body works in a specific way, so the response of your body to each movement will be um, defined. And so you can coordinate your body better when you are warm-up. So the warm-up still works for fascia, but uh, it's more than enough. Stretching is more like a 
squeezing the area. So squeezing to, you know, take it off lactic acid, the exceed amount. So with the technology that we have at this time, it seems that stretching probably is more indicated at the end for therapeutic purpose. And a warm-up uh, is what basically would be useful before to do important activity. Okay, more musculature as opposed to the fascia. Now, you've um, published a paper recently that, that uh, I read, and uh, again, uh, if, if you're interested in this area of study, this is fascinating. And it has to do with um, neuropathy. And is it, if I may, is it neural entrapment? Is that how you would phase it or phrase it? Correct. Um, this, I think, is a very important argument um, because everybody is focused in the entrapment at the spinal level. You know, everybody think about bulging, uh, entrapment of the root of the nerve at the spinal level. But most people forget that the nerve can be entrapped all on the way. So it can be entrapped all over around the, 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 the trunk, the limbs. So there are many, many hundreds of places where the nerve can be entrapped. Um, we did a simple review of the literature, and we were shocked at how much literature article explain these events that are well described, but seems that uh, is not so, you know, remembered during assessment process. So uh, is extremely common, is extremely uh, frequent events. Um, it can be make diagnosis with the electromyography, so the typical uh, investigation that we use for the nerve, and, and this will clarify, I think, many symptoms that the patient complain, but it's not due to the entrapment at the spinal level, but it's due to the peripheral. It is a great, uh, you know, information for the patient, because if it's a peripheral, simple manual therapy can improve the symptom, and, and we don't have to, you know, uh, we don't need a sophisticated uh, surgery at the spinal level to improve the symptom. So if, if you have, for instance, you know, it's so uh, prevalent, uh, back pain. So could this back pain actually be a radiated pain from a neural entrapment that's in a different place within the fascia? Well, honestly, low back, if the pain is just localized to the back area, um, it can be simple irritation of the free ending nerves, so of the nerve endings inside the fascia. So the fascia becomes rigid. The nerves inside the fascia is, are irritated. And so you have like a sort of bombardment from there, like a sensory uh, stimulation. And so you perceive pain from the low back area, from the toracolumbar fascia, the big fascia that we have in the low back area. Uh, but at that stage, uh, the nerve are not entrapped yet. Okay. When the situation gets more severe, and you start to have a little bit tingling or some alteration sensation, maybe down to the leg, it's still minor, and the MRI doesn't show up a, a severe dramatic uh, protrusion, that could be an entrapment of the sensory nerve that in order to reach the skin, they have to go through a hole in the deep fascia, in the long socks that I, I explained before. Mm -hmm. So that tiny hole, it can be like a two millimeter. If the fascia becomes a little bit more stiff, it can squeeze the nerve. And so you can feel like a 
numbness, tingling in that area, and it's a simple peripheral entrapment. Okay, so uh, just for my own clarification here, we're not talking pain, we're talking a neuropathy, a tingling and a loss of sensation as opposed to a painful sensation. Yeah, correct. Because um, a painful sensation, uh, that uh, is, it can be described like a, a knife, like a needle, like a, a heavy pulling. That can be correlated with the fascia problem, okay, just a, a simple like a nerve endings inside the fascia. When we will, uh, the patient will perceive like a, a aching, deep, uh, not well-defined uh, symptom that doesn't change with any posture, in, in particular at the extremity of the leg, that could be a, a major nerve entrapment that can uh, uh, reach the surface of the skin, okay, it can be present like in a specific area of the skin or all over the distal part of the leg. Interesting. Let's talk about some common health issues and ailments that now we can possibly attribute to a a type of pathology of the fascia or a a misfiring or improper functioning of the fascia Things like a frozen shoulder or even I have seen um, diabetes and obesity that has been attributed to, to fascia. Is this correct? Are we going too far with this? Or is this in the realm of fascia that's not operating properly? A frozen shoulder is related to fascia. When we talk about diabetes, we is too far. So diabetes affect connected tissue. Uh, we have a, there are articles that explain uh, that diabetes change completely the, the quality of the tendon, and so it changes also the quality of the connected tissue. It can generate like a anesthesia, dysesthesia, because uh, the nerves inside the, 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 the sheets around the, the nerve, so like uh, it, can, uh, it can be changed. But this is like a, it's a very major alteration of the anatomy. So we are far away from what uh, you know a simple fascia disorder can do. Uh, for your shoulder, that is a very classical situation that uh, fascia can be the key element. The key element that uh, over time uh, become uh, maybe a cofactor of the problem. Because obviously, if you don't uh, treat uh, and take care of the patient uh, uh, in a relative, uh, you know, short uh, frame time, uh, the situation can become uh, severe. It, it can affect also other structure like cartilage and uh, other elements. But um, for the shoulder, in the first eight months, it can be a clear myofascial problem that uh, can be treated and improve uh, in a relatively short amount of time. Would, would it be safe to say, or is it, is it too simple to say, that um, fascia issues are the result of an inflammation? Is it an inflammation impacting the fascia that is causing the problem, or is it a combination of different things that can lead to health issues? Um, inflammation will be... 
a rare, like a, the real inflammation, like a, after a contusion, an infection, yes, it will affect the fascia. It will uh, make the fascia more rigid as a response to the inflammatory process, to all the elements, the chemical elements that will uh, be present in that area. Um, I, I want to underline that a lot of time we make confusion between uh, inflammatory pain and what we call nociceptor pain. So inflammatory is due to an inflammation. Nociception, it means a decrease of the threshold of the receptor. So it's a pain due to a, a stimulation of the receptor, nerve receptor in the connective tissue. So this, the typical example, let's say, is like a shoulder pain. I have shoulder pain. When the weather changes, it gets worse. They told me to put ice over the shoulder, but in reality, with a hot package, with a, a hot shower, I feel better. That is not an inflammatory process, but that is a nociceptor problem. In nociceptor, it means, uh, in the majority of the time, myofascial problem. So, uh, most of the time, uh, like uh, inflammation is, uh, is not the problem, but... Uh, uh, is not so easy to distinguish because uh, sometimes uh, if without uh, particular investigation, uh, it's not possible to distinguish one from the other. But with a clinical uh, investigation, uh, in many times you can distinguish and you can uh, immediately understand what, what, what kind of treatment can be done to improve the symptom of the patient. Okay. Now let's get to the treatment um, as far as fascia manipulation. We are, uh, I don't want to get to the end of the show without talking about this therapy because it's fantastic. Can you explain to us this therapy that you have um, created to help with uh, the health of the fascia? Yeah. Fascia manipulation was invented by my father. Uh, let's say the first book is in 1987, so it's more than 30 years that uh, it's present worldwide. We are present in more than 50 countries. We, we teach more or less 3,000 people every year. So it's a deep friction in a specific area where the gladium of the fascia is critical for the biomechanics of the body. So if in this area that we have mapped, we, we feel that there is a lack of gladium, so as increase of the stiffness of the fascia, we know that for sure the biomechanics of the body is poor. And uh, on top of that, we know that uh, you can irritate the nerves in that area, in the surrounding area. So our approach is to assess the patient after a collection of data, uh, interview, ask the patient to, do a perf- to perform a specific motion, movement, to understand where is the limitation, to understand if we can exacerbate the symptom of the patient. Then we perform a, like a, an evaluation through a specific palpation in this spot that we have mapped, it, that palpation will allow us to define which point has to be treated through a deep friction. It, this uh, helps immediately the patient because the patient can have immediately a result, so a decrease of pain, an increase of range of motion that can last not just a few weeks, but we prove with the randomized control trial that we can have, we are able to maintain the results even at three, six, and nine months follow-up. This is why people are exciting because uh, we know every technique makes better. There's no doubt, 
but guaranteed a long-lasting result is the key difference. It's it's a fascinating. I've been looking at it and just the application in so many different areas. It truly is uh, a cutting edge. Um, both your research and the manipulation therapy. It's it's just a. It's just going to be so. Um, moving for people that have been in pain and, and arthritis or what they have anticipated was maybe something totally different than what um, is actually the case. And I think your work is fascinating. And I'd like to give the uh, link to the website, if I might, for the fascial manipulation. And it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've got fascialmanipulation.com. Is that correct? Yes. So right. fascial is F-A-S-C-I-A-L? manipulation.com yeah perfect thank you I I really appreciate it as we've talked uh, outside of our conversations here live it's an area that I find is extremely fascinating so thank you again for your time for coming on a second time I look forward to having on the show again with your your ongoing research Um, so thank you very much for joining us uh, Dr. Stecco well, thanks for the invitation. Always a pleasure. And I will be happy to be back. Wonderful. Everybody, thank you for joining us. And we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.